Hi there. Welcome to Kilroy is Here. I'm author L.S. Kilroy, and I wanted to start this podcast to talk about what I'm working on as a novelist and also to give writerly advice to other writers, especially those who work full-time and want to pursue their creativity on the side. So for today's episode, I wanted to talk about how I get ideas. Now, as a writer, and really in any field that involves creating content out of thin air, I always worry about where my next idea will come from, and also, of course, that dreaded day when maybe all of my ideas have run out. I call this a dry brain. But what I can share with you today is the odd circumstances and experiences that led to all three of my book ideas. And if you take away anything from this podcast, I want it to be that ideas can come from anywhere, from anyone, and from every experience you have. That's why it's most important to just live your life, get out there, and be among people and nature. And yes, even if you're an introverted heart like me, just because you're a storyteller doesn't mean you have to sit indoors, hold away in a dark room like a pale recluse with a bunch of cats and a bottle of scotch. As much as I love both cats and scotch to be creative. So in fact, I feel like the opposite is true. And that's what I found anyway in my experiences. Art, the best art, imitates life. And it's hard to imitate anything when you're stagnant. After all, an object at rest stays at rest, and so will your creativity. Now this may not be true for everyone. Sometimes it's good to ruminate, but it's better when there's already a nugget of an idea to ponder. So how have some of my best ideas come into being? Let's take a look and maybe this exercise will help spark some original new ideas for you. So my first book, The Vitruvian Air, is a futuristic dystopian novel. Um, and the original inspiration from it came from, believe it or not, a high school history class. That's correct. Something that happened in 1995 resurfaced nearly 20 years later and manifested in my 2015 debut. And here's how. So I was sitting in history class and I was really a terrible student of, well, I mean, that's, that's a lie. I wasn't a terrible student. However, if it was an English class or drama club or art, I wasn't really super interested. So I kind of, you know, got by. Um, and so I'm sitting in class on this one day, and, and I happen to be paying attention, which is great. Um, and she was talking, our, our teacher was talking about Catherine de' Medici, uh, and when she ruled the French court, how she had this group of ladies-in-waiting who were really more like female spies. And they would go out and kind of seduce all the powerful men and get their secrets and then report back to her. And this was how she wielded control over her court, um, which I found very interesting. And, you know, as a... 15-year-old who was already at that point writing and thinking up stories all the time, I kind of got a little inspired, and I thought, well, and also, side note, at this point, I was so much of a nerd that I was into Victorian literature and Dickens and all the, you know, Wuthering Heights and Jane Austen, so my mind immediately went to, what if there was a future version of the United States where, you know, a sort of dictator or emperor had come into power, and you know, he made everything go back to the Victorian times, and women lost their rights, um, and what if there was this woman who sort of had this group of girls and was planning a coup, and what if she sent her best girl in to seduce the emperor himself? Then, of course, my teenage self, uh, hopeless romantic, was like, but then the girl falls in love with him, and so that, you know, I'd started writing something, and I actually, I called it World War Three, which is a horrible, horrible title, but you know, back then I wasn't, I guess, as creative as I am now. And then 
it, you know, it just disappeared. Um, you know, uh, years went on and I forgot about all the like stories I had started uh, as a young adult. And so in 2013, 2014, in the news, of course, there are all these, I started noticing all these states starting to try to pass bills about women's reproductive health. Um, you know, and, and I thought, huh, this reminds me of that story I started writing where women were slowly losing their rights. And, you know, it, it kind of resurfaced for me and I fleshed it out more and it, it turned into the Vitruvian air. And so now the Vitruvian air, it, it's different than what I originally described, you know, that original nugget from 1995. Um, the Vitruvian air is really a, a version of the U.S. where a series of natural disasters sort of devastated the land then there was famine, and soon fear and panic spread throughout the country. And out of the rubble of a broken nation rose an empire. So it's about people being scared and fear-based voting leading to a dictatorial monarchy coming into place. And again, yes, here society has regressed to repress a Victorian standards. Women have slowly lost their rights, and those who rebel are severely punished. Um, bishops and lords impose their will on segregated nation regions, but no one pays much heed to the nits, which are run-down areas, um, officially policed by bribed criminals and inhabited by the poor. So it's a world where there's an elite ruling class, women are completely repressed, and the poor are disenfranchised. But, believe it or not, it is fiction. Uh, although scarily becoming sort of more and more of a reality here. Um, and the main character is Lorelai Featherston, who's called Lore. She's a daughter of the aristocracy, and she's inherently rebellious. And she's torn, in the beginning of the novel, she's torn between accepting her impending role as a dutiful wife or escaping to the bordering nation of Hope Spoke to seek the truth behind a secret legacy left to her by her grandmother. Um, you know, in Hope Spoke, and it's ironic because the deep physical location of Hope Spoke is actually uh, current-day Texas, um, which, of course, we all know is a conservative state. Um, but it sort of, like, takes an opposite turn, like, you know, in the past in this book, it has seceded and become kind of its own nation. And there, everyone is free, and according to legend, this enigmatic woman, here's the idea, runs an underground squadron of girls and wields much influence. And there, Lore could pursue her writing without fear of punishment. And this isn't her only dilemma, though. After she graduates, she's supposed to wed her childhood friend Gideon, but her heart is with their mutual best friend Fallon, who's also the current emperor's ward and heir to the throne. But then everything changes. Her free-spirited friend Sawyer, who's sort of a, a wild child, gets herself into a situation where she's in very grave danger, and Laura is forced to make a decision. So... It's either stay or run and save her friend. So you'll have to see what happens. You'll have to read the book, of course. But anyway, that original idea started my sophomore year in high school. And then resurfaced. Who knew? Now, my second book is a little different. My second book is called The Clothes That Make You, and it is actually set in 1967. It's set in 1967, which was a very kind of tumultuous year. Um, the world is changing, and so is the main character, Sally Fiore, who is a quiet misfit. And now, this book, I, I drew inspiration from a couple of different places. Sometimes what will happen is I will, you know, I'll get an idea, um, and then I'll get another idea. <laughs> and then sometimes I'll get a third idea, and I'll mash them up together. So, 
the three ideas that made up this book is, you know, at first I thought, I don't know why I was thinking about this, but, you know, I thought, yeah, a relative, so a relative passes away, and you, you have all their clothes and all their belongings, and what do you do? You know, after a while, I guess you, you know, most people get rid of them or donate them and, and whatnot, and I just started thinking of a scenario where, you know, someone had lost her father, you know, and maybe she would be in her in her town and she would see a homeless man you know wearing one of her father's shirts and maybe she struck up a friendship with him or something you know that was an original seed of an idea about somebody wearing you know somebody seeing someone wearing their deceased relative's clothes and how would they react um and then another idea came from a, a real life character um my good friend john's sister patty and patty is she and this is very sad, who she recently passed away, um, this, this past October, she, she was killed by somebody who ran a red light and plowed into her car, and, you know, when I, when I was writing this book, um, a couple of years ago, uh, you know, I interviewed Patty for it, because I wanted the character to be really authentic, and Patty, she's just, she was so alive, she just kind of, you know, she was, she's a gay teen who had come out to her family, um, I think junior in high school, and, and eventually she, you know, she cut her hair real short, she was adorable, she had this little kind of like pompadour hairdo, and she just was someone who was just so authentic, and just so herself, and so just unapologetic about who she was, and proud, and I thought, God, like, I would love to base a character on her, so the character Sam comes from that inspiration, from from Patty, and then my mom, like, another piece of inspiration, so my mom growing up, when my mom was 17, her dad passed away, he, he died of a heart attack, and she and my grandma had to make do, and, and my grandma and grandpa had been childhood sweethearts, they grew up next door to each other, and my mom and grandma had a really hard time, like, you know, my grandma went to work at the laundry and dry cleaners to make ends meet and keep the house and send my mom to college, and so I just thought, what an interesting, like, like these three pieces kind of came together to form a story, um, and so what the book's about is after the sudden death of her father, Sally turns to comfort in the small things. Her books, her new interest in sewing, and her slight infatuation with the handsome young custodian at school, who always is, she sees him reading all the time. And then her sheltered life ends up getting turned upside down in January of 1968 when she makes an unlikely friend in the New Gillard School, a feisty civil rights activist named Sam, who dresses like a boy, prefers to date girls, and is defiantly unapologetic about her differences. And so the book is really about their friendship and about Sally kind of coming out of her shell and learning to make clothes and, um, you know, dealing with high school bullies and things like that. And also um, dealing with a brother who is going to enlist in the war. And this decade, you know, and this was, 68 was also when Martin Luther King was assassinated. I mean, there there was so much going on and I thought... Like, what an interesting thing to look at this kind of small-town life of this girl who's growing up against the backdrop of a nation really kind of in turmoil. Um, and, and, you know, the sad thing, too, and the sad thing about both of these these books, The Vitruvian Era and The Clothes That Make You, is that really these things are still very prevalent today. Like, these issues, racism, gender stereotypes, um, women's rights, you know, these are things we're still sadly dealing with in our time. So I really write to 
spark a dialogue because I think the more people talk about things and the more people talk about our differences and we, you know, instead of fearing things because they're different, we talk about it and we start understanding each other more. That's what I want my books to do. I want them to spark a dialogue. And so my third book that I actually just released um, the other day is called Heart Like Eyes and it's set in the present day. So now I, I love the fact that I have books set in the past, the future and the present. And so this book came about because I, you know, I was doing some freelance work for um, a former, he was actually my first boss ever and back when I was in college and I still keep in touch with him and it's really, it's um, a cruising guide for people who vote for leisure. So I often sometimes edit some of the chapters for them still. And he's just a really funny character. He's kind of a curmudgeon. He's a lifelong bachelor. Um, And so I started thinking of a character based around him, but one that kind of lives on a boat. Um, And then also I started thinking about, um, you know, I used to work for a company called Patients Like Me, and it was a platform for people with chronic illnesses. And I learned a lot about many different illnesses, um, but particularly one that stuck with me is ALS. Um, which is just, it's a horrible disease and we really need to learn more about it and there needs to be more attention paid to it. And I met a man um, named Steve, Steve Sailing, uh, while I was there. He was one of the most active members of our ALS community. And I, I got to meet him and interview him a, a couple of times and visit him in his, um, where he lives, which is he, so when he was diagnosed, he had been, um, He'd been working on, like, uh, the public spaces, the the Greenway down in Boston. He'd been actually designing it to be handicapped accessible. Um, and so he ended up, when he was diagnosed, instead of sort of getting his affairs in order, like the doctors will tell you, instead he teamed up with this nursing home in um, Chelsea, Mass., and he he designed a fully automated space for people with ALS um, and other like debilitating diseases like that to still live independent lives. So he uses eye gaze software to open doors and things like that. And he lives a fully independent life still, um, which I think is he's an amazing inspiration. And so I really wanted to, you know, to shed some light on that. And so my main character has been diagnosed with ALS. And so this is something he's dealing with. And he's also had uh, somewhat of a tragic past that he's dealing with. And he's in a really dark place. Um, in the novel, when his sort of wayward niece Marin shows up out of nowhere, um, you know, and he's always been her favorite uncle, and they've always been close, and she kind of shows up and throws his plan to kill himself out the window, um, and he ends up having to invite her to stay for the summer. And while she's there, she uh, makes friends with um, a boy named Teddy, who's a, an intellectual headed to Harvard in the fall, and Teddy is actually, uh, Teddy's adopted, and he's African-American, and he's you know, one of the only brown people in this town, uh, this little port town that I was imagining a Delaware kind of area port town. And this idea was inspired by a friend of mine, Megan, who she and her husband, you know, they were told they weren't going to have any biological children. And then they ended up adopting this African-American boy. And then shortly after, they did have their own biological children and they had a son. And she made a post on Facebook about the differences and the disparity between raising her two sons, um, her biological son and her adopted son. And she said, you know, when she was pregnant with her biological son, everyone was like, oh, boys are great. Enjoy every moment. You know, they're so fun. But then when she had her, was adopting her, her African-American son, people said different things. They were like, 
don't let him walk alone. Like, don't tell him not to wear a hoodie. Have him bounce a basketball to look less threatening. You know, make sure you're in a town with a vetted police department. Things like that. And she thought, this is so... This is so unfair that my sons are going to be raised in the same family with the same amount of love and their lives are going to be so different because of that. And so I I started thinking about that idea too. So I kind of weaved all of these together into a story. And also during the summer, you know, where Teddy and Marin are friends and Sean is dealing with his past and his current diagnosis, Teddy's bigoted grandmother, Shirley, is also experiencing her own awakening and redemption. Um, and, you know, Shirley is based around the idea of, hey, we all have some relatives that maybe have some, you know, unconscious bias going on. And maybe they have extremely different political views from us. And how do you sort of grapple with that and deal with that? Um, and, you know, without destroying your family relationships, right? Because that's something that probably a lot of us deal with. And, you know, in this novel, what happens is, you know, there's sort of a twist, which I didn't expect myself as I was writing it, it sort of happened. So a dark secret and a decades-old promise caused their worlds to collide in a way beyond mere serendipity and edging on destiny as they realize what it truly means to be part of the bigger world where we're all connected and we all belong to each other. And, you know, I think it's always important to realize we're all in this together. And even if we we have differences. There's more that makes us similar than makes us different. Um, and so that's really what I wanted to address in this book. Um, and so that's, that's it really. So see your best fiction ideas can come from literally any part of your life. So pay attention and don't stress out about your creativity, um, drying up, you know, as long as you remain curious and a constant observer, interesting things are all around you. And in this podcast series, I'll be talking more about how to get and stay inspired, tips on self-publishing, how to have a work-life blend, especially if you're working full-time and trying to be personally creative, character development, and more. In the meantime, I would love to hear from you and keep in touch. So subscribe to my mailing list at lskilroy.com. There will be, you know, I'll, I'll be sending out emails on work, giveaways, contests, and more. And please follow me on Facebook. I'm author L.S. Kilroy. I'm Twitter at L.S. Kilroy 1. And I'm Instagram at author underscore L dot S dot Kilroy. So I would really love to hear from you and see what you're doing. And stay inspired, guys. Bye-bye.